0: Again, great to see everyone here this morning. Uh, Excited and happy that we are uh, back here in the sanctuary. Um, As some of you know, that have been tracking along with us, but some of you may not know. uh, Over the summer, we were meeting in the Family Life Center, which is the fellowship space uh, a little further down. Uh, So that was a a nice little respite and change of pace uh, over the summer, but really happy that we're back uh, in the sanctuary and we'll be here uh, for the remainder of the fall and uh, winter and into uh, spring of next year. Um, And excited to be continuing on in our sermon series. We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Many of us have been tracking with us. And our sermon series is uh, we've been calling King and Kingdom as we consider what it means for Jesus to be king and what it means for us to be a part of his kingdom. Uh, We've been going through uh, expositionally. We've uh, made it through uh, the Sermon on the Mount which was a great opportunity for us to understand the character of the kingdom. And now we've come post that into Matthew's chap- Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and we've been kind of calling this series, in the, in the middle of the series, the Sermon on the Move. The Sermon on the Mount has ended, and now Jesus is on the move with his disciples, and we see the character of the kingdom being born out. So we come now, uh, we were in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, and we come now to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Uh, You may be familiar with the historic uh, creeds of the Christian faith. Uh, There are uh, a few of them. There are more than than a few of them, but there are a few of them. Um, These creeds are sort of summary statements of our faith. Um, Christians, for centuries have sought ways to take what it is we know to be true, uh, summarize it in a way that we can understand it, that we can internalize it, and that we can reaffirm what it is that we believe. And that's what these creedal statements are. There are, are a few of them. Maybe the most uh, famous of them and the most widely used is the Apostles' Creed, what's known as the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is broken up into three, three sections, and, it's, uh, and these three sections begin with this word, I believe. I believe. Three sections. The first section is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The second section talks about, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And the third section, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And there are other affirmations that come in between those. In the third section of the Apostles' Creed, there is a particular affirmation that I would want us to consider and think about this morning. And that is, I believe the forgiveness of sins. I believe the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I say that, uh, I didn't see any eyes uh, open up really wide and go, what? Right? No one jumped up and went, wait a minute. That's in there. No one was shocked by this, right? No, I said it, and, you kind of, and everyone was kind of like, okay, yeah, right? And it shouldn't be, right? There shouldn't be any sort of uh, surprise that this is there. No Christian is going to be cringing at hearing that because every Christian would recognize that that small affirmation, I believe in forgiveness of sins, is actually a large part of our Christian faith. And this makes sense in the context of the Gospel of Matthew as we have been going through, in the, in the context of the Gospel. Think back with me, back to the Sermon on the Mount and back to Jesus teaching um, how to pray. The Lord's Prayer. We spent a lot of time there. And what was it Did, did we find at the center of the Lord's Prayer? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. If you fast forward to the end of Jesus' earthly life, during the Last Supper, we see in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, this is my my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. We've already taken a moment to meditate and think upon the cross, but think of Jesus shedding his own precious blood, crying out, what? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even after the resurrection, in Luke chapter 24, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Thus, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead And that repentance and what? Forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So, yes, I believe, and I hope you believe in the forgiveness of sins, because this is at the heart of Jesus' mission on earth, it is at the heart of his kingdom. Last week, in the beginning, in the passage before this, in the beginning of Matthew 9, uh, we saw the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And there, we learned that Jesus has what? The authority to forgive sins. In this passage, this morning, we will learn how Jesus uses this authority we'll learn that Jesus uses this authority to sovereignly call sinners. And what we have really here is the conversion story of Matthew. Interesting that we have the gospel writer Matthew sharing his own story with us. And through that, we're going to learn two things. First, that one, Christ's call is sovereign. And secondly, that Christ's call is for who? Sinners, sinners. So let's start with the sovereignty of uh, Christ's call. So I hope that when you come to read Scripture, that um, that you don't, you know, sort of glaze over the obvious. I think sometimes we can come to Scripture and uh, we maybe we're. Too close to it, too familiar to it, right? Maybe we've been in church for a long time and we've read the story a few times and we maybe just are going a little too fast. But I hope in verse, the first verse here, in verse 9 of chapter 9, and we're just going to stay there for a while, that we would make some careful observations about some obvious things, recognizing that sometimes what looks ordinary can be quite extraordinary. So let's look at Matthew Matthew chapter 9 verse 9. And let's just read it again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. That's it. Again, this is Matthew's Gospel. If, there was, if I was writing a gospel, I might have, you know, given it a little more burn, right? But Matthew here, not quite John's approach, right? John seems to refer to himself a lot in his gospel. Matthew here, this is it. This is the only reference you're going to, not the only reference, but the only time where Matthew is in his own gospel is brought out in the narrative. And I think we have to ask a question here as we come to this and we read it. And let's not gloss over the obvious I think we have to start with a question, and that question is, why Matthew? Why did Jesus approach and call this man? We have some parallel passages that give us some context. In Mark chapter 2, we're told that all the crowd was coming to Jesus. And then in Mark chapter 2 is followed by, he saw Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I come to Scripture and I read it, uh, it's hard for me not to, see, especially in the Gospels, not to see sort of the, the cinematic quality of the Gospels. And when I read this verse, and when you bring in the context from, from Mark, there's a picture, and I said we'd see some pictures this morning, some images, right? And, and, and when, I, when I hear this scene, I envision it in a certain way. And the one thing that strikes me, now think about it. The crowds are, are gathering around him. Jesus has been doing what? Healing, miracles, the crowd, the throng around him. Maybe there's folks pulling on him. Maybe there's folks screaming at him. Maybe there's folks praising him. Maybe there's folks asking him questions. A chaotic scene of a horde of people around Jesus. The clamor. The chaos. And in the midst of all that, what's peculiar to me is that Jesus, who's being mobbed by this crowd, that's showing great interest in him, right? Apparent interest in him, this great crowd that's, that's, that's searching after him. In the midst of that, what does Jesus do? He approaches the one guy in town that seems to show what? No interest in him at all. That image is, is blazed into my mind, Now, I don't think it's that Matthew didn't know anything about Jesus. As a tax collector whose whose booth or station was in the region of the Sea of Galilee, he surely knew about Jesus more than other people probably did. And if he hadn't already seen Jesus face to face, he had most certainly heard about him. Everybody, everybody in Capernaum had, had surely heard about Jesus. And yet, and let's not gloss over the obvious thing in the passage, what is the posture that we find Matthew in, in verse 9? All of that and still what? Matthew sits. He sits. It's fascinating. It's apparent, it, it, apparently he's... Just uninterested in Christ. Uninterested in his ministry. Not even curious like the crowd or the the scribes or some that maybe have traveled great distances to um, see Jesus in action and, and figure out what he's about. And as Jesus passes by with this large crowd following him, Matthew doesn't even budge to see this, you know, great rabbi, this, this new prophet, this miracle worker. So now we have another question. Why? Why that? Why? I propose it's because, like most tax collectors of his time, if he was going to move it was going to be because of the God of money, right? Not of anybody else, right? If he was going to bow a knee, if he was going to make some sort of move, change his posture, it was going to be because of the God of money. You can think of him as, in the modern day, as that, you know, as that workaholic, right, who is... um, Regardless of what the uproar is, regardless of what the chaos is around them, regardless of what's going on, busy at work, right? Sitting behind their desk, utterly convinced in his mind that what? Time is money, right? So think think with me, of all, so of all the men, women, and children gathered around Jesus, you would think Jesus would show some interest to who? Someone in the crowd, wouldn't you think? But instead, what does he do? He goes to Matthew, the one person who is not going to him. And it's strange enough that Jesus goes to Matthew... And he specifically says to Matthew and no one else, what what does he say? Follow me. Strange, that's all strange enough. But you you know what even strikes me maybe a little bit more? Matthew's response. Matthew actually responds positively. In one brief sentence, as we said, what does he say? And he rose and followed him. Again, if we pull some context from the other Gospels, in Luke chapter 5 it says that Matthew left everything behind. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know the story, right? Probably heard it in Sunday school a whole bunch of times, right? Probably heard multiple sermons on this. But for a moment, if you'd indulge me, imagine if you hadn't. Imagine if you had never heard this before. Imagine reading this for the first time. Wouldn't you be surprised when you read that this too busy tax collector with one simple call leaves this lucrative occupation to follow this controversial traveling preacher who is homeless has nowhere to lay his head, we knew earlier. So why? Why did Jesus call Matthew, and why did Matthew follow Jesus? What do these somewhat odd or striking occurrences teach us? What can we learn from Jesus' Unpredictable selection of Matthew and Matthew's unexpected response. What do we take? We are to learn that Christ's call to salvation is completely sovereign. It's completely sovereign. How else can we explain what happened? And, and what's not explicitly stated here, but if you take the rest of Scripture, if you take the rest of the weight of Scripture and sort of place it here or shine a light on, with that on here, we recognize Matthew was called. He was called by the irresistible grace of God. What happened to Matthew is what happened earlier on. We've already seen Jesus has called some disciples, right? What happened is what happened to James, and John, and Peter, and Andrew, and guess what? You, and me, and every other Christian who has ever come to follow Christ. As Matthew looked into the face of Jesus Christ and heard Christ's command, he experienced the powerful call of God. A God who, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Christ's call to salvation is sovereign. It is sovereign. It's specific, right? There's an effectual nature to it right? So therefore, right, Jesus' call here is different from, you know, any other call, right? Any call that you might do. I don't know if you've been in a situation to to make this call. I have many times, Uh, you know, dressed up, ready to go, maybe even on a Sunday for church. I'm not going to say if that's the situation or not, but maybe even, right? Ready, Ready to go, and then what is it, you know? You're down at the bottom of the stairs, and where are you yelling? Up the stairs, and what is it? Come on, let's go. You're calling, right? We're going to be late. Jesus calls, Jesus calls, and he is met with what? This obedience, this immediate obedience, right? We don't hear it said that Matthew goes, yeah, that Jesus says, hey, come on, Matthew, let's go. And then we don't hear that Matthew goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm coming, I'm coming. Tell me if you've heard this before. I don't know. I'll be there in a minute, right? Let me first, let me first take care of this transaction, right? Or let me first pack my bags. Or first, let, let, me, let me grab a bite to eat. Let me comb my hair. Let me brush my teeth, right? Whatever it might have been. Right? We, don't, we don't see that. Think back. Into Matthew chapter 8. To the leper, Jesus says, be clean. And there's a certain immediacy that we see in chapter 8 and chapter 9, right? To the leper, Jesus says what? Be clean. And then what? Immediately what? Clean. Last week, to the paralytic, he says what? Rise. And then what? He immediately rises. And to Matthew, Jesus says what? Follow me. And what happens? He immediately follows. He follows. We've seen some miracles in chapter 8, haven't we? Haven't we seen some miracles? But don't miss this. In the conversion of Matthew, is this not as much of a miracle? as any other miracle that we have seen in in Matthew chapter 8? Now, the, the obvious sovereignty of God here does not discount Matthew's genuine response. There is a tension that exists here. Right? Matthew's not some kind of robot that Christ reprograms and then, bloop, you know, flips on the power power switch. So as much as this is, you know, a perfect illustration of Christ's sovereign call, God does not do our believing for us. God does not do our believing for us. And you have Matthew presenting his conversion with such brevity, but that little statement is not so little. It says what? He rose and followed him. This shows something. It shows a converted heart and mind and will. There was a demonstration of what? Genuine faith. In Matthew's following, His faith is evidenced. Yet, with all of that said and that context, we will miss the point here if we see Matthew's conversion as some act of self-will or if his conversion is just some random act of kindness by Jesus. Right? That he was what? Just right guy. Right place, right time. That's not what's happening here. Verse 9 does not allow us to understand it in this way. Instead, what this shows us is the radical character of Jesus' call. His kingdom is radical and his call is radical. A call that you can think of it like a king... Summoning a servant to become an heir. That's a radical call. And that's something like of what Jesus' call is. Now think about this truth with me and relate this to us and and those people in our lives, those people in our orbit. If Christ can and does call uninterested and undeserving sinners like Matthew, then there is hope that no one we know is too far removed from the sovereign call of Christ. No one we know. If Christ sovereignly calls a person, we can trust that individual will respond. And and this truth should bring us, what should it bring us? It should bring us encouragement. This truth should bring us hope. When we read this passage, when we hear the wonderful news that what Matthew gets up, seated Matthew, remember that image, gets up and follows Jesus, We should never feel in despair over those people in our lives who seem farthest from the kingdom. Their disinterest in God is not a valid indication of God's disinterest in them. Let me say that one more time. Their disinterest in God is not a valid indication of God's disinterest in them. Every soul you know, no matter his or her reputation for unrighteousness, no matter their refusal of anything religious or spiritual, they are one call away from following Jesus. So pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for Christ's call upon their lives. Matthew received the gospel for the same reason that we received the gospel. Because God worked sovereignly and powerfully through his word, through his spirit, in calling us all to Christ. So we've taken some time to consider the sovereign call of Christ. There's another truth here that we should spend some time on, and that is Christ's call is for who? Sinners. 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 So I look around, and I can't, well, actually I can't look around because I can't really see past halfway here. I don't know if you brought your Bible here with you today. Um, you may say, of course I did. I have my phone, so I have my Bible, right? Um, uh, you know, I know growing up, right, that wasn't a thing, right? If you needed to bring your Bible to church, either the church had a Bible there or what? You were, you were bringing your uh, Bible to church. Um, I wonder... If maybe technology has removed us one step away from um, connecting with the scriptures, right? I, I don't know. I, I know for me, uh, it's kind of a personal thing to, to bring my Bible, right? For me, I, there's something for me about feeling the, the weightiness, the physical weightiness of God's word, and experiencing the, sp- the spiritual weightiness of uh his word um so uh so i encourage you uh you know yeah your phone is your bible but you know bring your bible to church or you know grab grab one in the pew and and open it up um if you have a bible of your own you may or may not have a version that is red lettered right and that's a practice that's been going on for quite some time and in that in the gospel in the gospels you will see that jesus words are red right they're to highlight um the, the spoken words of Jesus. But in addition to that, if you, had your, um, if you had your Bibles here, or, you know, if you've got an online Bible and you, you, you're good with marking it up, but if you had your actual physical Bible, Bible here and you had a highlighter and you had a pen, I would tell you right now, and give you permission to star, circle, highlight, The end of verse 13, where Christ says, What? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. That is the main point of this passage. Like, maybe at some point, you know, the te- technology will get there where, you know, we, you could make certain passages light up and, and dance on the page for you. I wish I could. But that this is what should be flashing before your eyes. Matthew is a tax collector. And, and for us, that has a certain meaning. But, and I think we've talked about this previously in our, in our discussions in Matthew, um, that meant something very particular in the time frame where Jesus is preaching. You know? We might think of okay, tax collector. So he works, he's Roman IRS, right? So probably a good job. People probably make fun of him. Ha ha, you steal my money, right? But this is not the case. That's not what this was. To most first century Jews, tax collectors were easily, easily the most hated people in society, why? They were viewed as religious and, and cultural traitors working for Rome to extort the people, trained extortionists, thugs, the, hot, the cr- criminals. This was the connotation of a tax collector in this time. So it's important for us to recognize it. In many of the uh, extra-Jewish literature around the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, in many of those documents of the rabbis, they would lump tax collectors in with murderers. Lump tax collectors in with thieves. So Matthew, a tax collector, is officially, he's excommunicated from the synagogue. He's out. He's on the outside, and unofficially, he's on the outside of society. But you might be saying, this is a woe is me for, for Matthew, and I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, sympathy for Matthew here. Nah. I, I don't know if you should feel sorry for him. Why? He freely He freely chose it. Freely chose this questionable uh, occupation. Why? Likely compelled by what? Greed. What was his thinking? You know, hey, this 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 job. It's you know socially. It's morally. I'm on the outside. But man, that paycheck, (laughs) that paycheck is nice. Now keep in mind, Matthew is the author here. He is retelling what? His own story. So he wants us to know what? What type of person he was. A tax collector. And he wants us to know that the type of person that Jesus approached and called was what? A tax collector. See, the story here is not so much, it's not really about how Matthew was converted, but it's really about who was converted. Who? You tell me who was converted, this mobster, this thug, this extortionist, this outcast. Now, use your imagination with me. Picture... You know, Jesus, we've already seen that Jesus has already gathered some disciples, right? And we saw that account. He's got his first four disciples. Who are they? James, John, Peter, and Andrew. Imagine, imagine with me. You put your, you know, imagination cap on. Imagine Jesus comes and he gets the four disciples and he goes, huddle up, huddle up, right? Football season's here, right? So this should connect with everybody, right? Jesus pulls everyone in. Huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. Jesus is going to call the play. Jesus, what's the play? Jesus says, all right, guys, listen up. Here's the play. I've decided to increase our number. they got to be excited, right? Jesus, who? Jesus, who's it going to be? You know, one of these scribes that's visiting from Jerusalem, or you know, they look at all these people, right? There's, you know, just some worthy candidates out here. What does Jesus say? No, come in, come in, come in. Here's the play. I've decided to call Matthew, you know, the greedy, godless guy down in the tax office. What do you think the response was? Probably stunned silence at first, but the silence would not have lasted long, why? You know why? Peter's there, right? (laughs) It's not gonna last very long with Peter around. And Peter, right, you know, unable to stop himself from talking, Probably gets Jesus and says, Jesus, 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 you know. If you choose this guy, you are going to alienate everybody. It's a bad enough you started with fishermen. If you pick Matthew, you are going to wreck this thing. I mean, honestly, I don't even know what this thing is. But whatever this thing is, you are going to wreck it if you choose him you'll wreck it and i hear uh, no you know listen we're using our imagination but if peter were to say something like this i kind of feel like it sounds like it sounds like many christians today it sounds like the mere pragmatism that you will hear from many parts of christianity today when it, comes to, um, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to expanding the kingdom, uh, you know, the thinking in many evangelistic circles is that what? Hey, if we, let's, you know, we can just get, get one Christian athlete, right? If we can just get one of those, or maybe, maybe we get one Christian, you know, a musician, or maybe we get one Christian intellectual, and you get, if you get them and get them to share their testimony, right, then the, we can flip the culture. Right, makes perfect sense. But you know, thankfully, Jesus, he didn't rely on mere pragmatism in his ministry. If he wanted to impress others, right, especially the movers and shakers of society, he would have never, never shown interest in Matthew. He's the, the worst candidate. But see, Jesus, is not, he's not interested in the big name. He's not interested in religious elitism. What was he interested in? Sinners from every walk of life, especially those sinners with whom no self-righteous person would dare associate. And that's what we see in the calling of Matthew in verse 9. And that is also what we see in verses 10 to 13 when we see Jesus attending a banquet. So let's read 10 and 13 again, and if you will, put, a, put on your cinematic eyes for this, right? Let's read 10 to 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, those who already think they are good, but sinners, those who know or at least others know that they're not good good at all. So if you look at that passage, there's a word that's repeating there. Do you see that? The word sinners. It occurs three times in four verses. Jesus is at a tax collector's house eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's reclining and eating with outcasts, those that were known for breaking the law of God, those that were not observing any of the traditions. So in order to see the picture here for a moment, uh, just as we normally sit at a table to eat meals, ancient Jews... For most of the time would share that same posture for most of their meals. They sat at a table, but but for more formal dinners, for maybe a special banquet, they would recline on couches or carpets. So again, see the picture with me. See the image this morning. Here is Jesus. The holy Lord God of the universe, lounging with the reprehensible, dining with the detestable ones, right? Talking with the unclean, the lowest of society. Here's Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, sharing this meal of fellowship. It was the most intimate custom in in Jewish society. He's he's sharing this meal of fellowship with unclean Jews and Gentiles, extending to them the fellowship of God. Again, if you go into Mark's gospel, chapter 2, you see that Jesus' message of mercy and forgiveness was was probably received well that night. In Mark 2.15, it says, there were many, many who followed him. Many who followed I, I think back to when um, when I was in grad school, and uh, I spent some time in campus ministry while I was there. And every so often, we would we would hit the streets, right? We would uh, we we would go out on the street, we'd go on to the the corner, and we, we'd start talking. We'd start talking with the people. Um, Interesting, mostly college students, grad students, young professionals. That's mostly who we're talking, This is year, years ago now. But, and I remember, it, not, not so, it wasn't so hard to find someone who would say with their lips that Jesus was the Son of God. It, it wasn't that hard uh, to find someone who would say it with, just say it with their lips. But to find someone who would actually acknowledge and say, I'm a sinner, was actually kind of hard in that setting. It was. Like that that label, that idea, people w- w- weren't taking to it. And I compare that, and I think of a, a conversation I had with someone who spent a significant amount of time uh, in in, in prison. And in talking with them, they were with some folks and encountered some folks that had done some horrible things. And he told me that these folks, in large part, All admitted to being a sinner. <laughs> right? That they, that they took that label and they, they stuck it on their chest. and not because, and not because they were proud of it, but because they had an understanding of the reality. They were realistic about it when they looked at their situation. And I, and I think of those two situations in my mind, and I think that at times the worst sinners often make the, the, the ripest candidates for God's mercy because unlike the quote-unquote righteous, right, the religious person with no blemishes on his background check, the sinner, what, knows he is in need, longs for a cure. And Christ stands with, or you could say reclines with, <laughs> stands close to those who know that they are far from him. Why? Why? Why does Jesus stand close to those that know that they are far from him? Because that's why he came. Come back to that highlighted verse that you may or may not have highlighted, right? The flashing lights around that verse. He what? Came to call sinners. Not after they've shown interest in Him or, or they've cleaned up their act, but while they are still deep in their sins. I think back to our call to worship this morning in First Timothy. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. He came to save sinners. Yes, he was a teacher. Yes, he was a miracle worker. Yes, he was a king. Yes, he was the perfect moral example of how we should live our lives. But if that's all he was, there would be no hope for us. No hope for us fallen creatures suffering from this fatal disease, dying physically and spiritually from sin. Jesus was and is a Savior for sinners. He's a Savior who so loved us that he came down to give us God's medicine for our eternal relief. And what is that medicine? The forgiveness of sins. As we come to close this morning, uh, I'll I'll bring us back to where we started uh, with the Apostles' Creed. And that creedal statement has a legend around it that each of the 12 apostles wrote one of the 12 articles of faith. Um, Now, I say legend has it because the veracity of that uh, statement is Pretty hard to verify that as as actually accurate, right? So the story is a little it's a little on the nose, right? But it is very creative nonetheless, to think in that sort of way. And if you would with me, imagine again, I would imagine Peter telling the rest of the apostles, "Hey, you know, write out one of these lines." And they each write their lines. What would they be? You know, Peter, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Right? Thomas, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And he goes through others and he gets to matthew and what might have matthew contributed to the to the creed maybe what i believe in the forgiveness of sins because he did they did the question that lies before us this morning is do you do you Believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting as we have looked to look at the Gospels through the lens of the author. We, uh, we know we have Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, written by who? Matthew, a disciple. We also have the Gospel of John that we mentioned, right? Which is also what? Written by the disciple and a disciple, John, right? And we already mentioned in John's Gospel, he refers to him himself quite a bit. And when he does, he will often refer to himself, John, with a particular moniker. Well, what is it? What is that? The one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. We see Matthew's approach is a little different, right? His approach to himself in the narrative is very different, right? This is the only place in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew inserts himself in the narrative. He's nowhere else in in, in any sort of material way. A very minimalistic approach. But if we look at what what he wrote here, if he were to have created a moniker for himself like John did, what might that have been? I think it could have been the one who was a sinner. The one who was a sinner. And I think if you take both those monikers, right, and put them together, you have the perfect summary of a testimony of those who have been sovereignly called by a gracious God. Put those two together. What do you get? The one who was a sinner, the one whom Jesus loved. The one who was a sinner, the one whom Jesus loved. Let that be your testimony today. Let that be the ground of your Worship today. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and worship together this morning.